0: God, you know all, you see all, you hear all things. God, you are all powerful and present in every place at any given time. So we know you're present here in this room, in and through your Holy Spirit. You're at work in the hearts of those who know you. You're even at work in those in the hearts of those who who don't to, to, to convict and draw them to yourself. God, for those hands that went up just now, for those individuals that we are praying for by name, God, we just fill in the blank right now. God, we lift up blank. God, each of us, just put that name in that blank. God, we just bring them to you, bring them to your throne room. Ask God that you would give us boldness in sharing the gospel and inviting them this Easter season. God, that you would soften their heart, that you would do whatever you need to do in their life to draw those individuals to yourself. God, those are family members, those are friends, those are people that we love so dearly and we want them to know you, oh God. So we just, God, bring this big, hairy, audacious goal again before you that we would have 100 people that came to know you for the very first time this Easter season at Bayview Glen. God, if that's what you want to do, if that's not what you want to do, that is your prerogative. You are God. But, But Father, we ask, we seek, we knock, we come to you and request. God, we beseech you. And we come to you every day on behalf of these individuals asking that you would draw them to yourself. If it's not your timing, that's okay, all that stuff, God. But we want to be a church that comes to you on our knees in prayer asking that you would use us to move your kingdom forward and set captives free. God, even as we conclude Ephesians this morning, speak to our hearts. Encourage us, exhort us, convict us, comfort us. Whatever it is, Spirit of God, that you want to do, we ask you to do that in this time. In the name of Christ, the people of God with enthusiasm said, amen. Here we are concluding the book of Ephesians excited about what God has to say to us today. So if you've got your Bible, open it up. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in the seat back in front of you. Uh, I want to let you know that that Bible in front of you, there's kind of different translations of Scripture. That's a new international version. I am reading from the English Standard Version. Mine's the right version. That's not true. That's not (laughs) true. That's not true. You know that when languages get translated, they can get translated a number of different ways. And so you'll see some differences, but it's, you know, it's obviously really close and all that stuff. And so just want to let you know that. But uh, we're in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 20. We're closing it up, the book of Ephesians, with Paul's last, final exhortation to this church at Ephesus. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. Here we go. Paul says, finally... And take up the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with perseverance. Making supplication to all the saints and also for me. That words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. For which I am an ambassador in chains that I may declare it. Boldly as I ought to speak. I've got a question, a set of three real questions to kind of get our heads around where we're going this morning to kind of ramp us in and kind of start us off here. No right or wrong answers, no shame, all that stuff, right? So here, here it is easy questions. How many of you grew up in a culture, in a family, in a situation where spiritual things were very much at the forefront of your experience? Altars on the side of the road, altars in somebody's home, prayer, whether it's Jesus' spirituality or not Jesus' spirituality, just any kind of spirituality, a recognition that there is something other than the the immaterial world, there is a material world. Thanks for getting that song stuck in my head this morning, Um, living in a material world, and I am a material girl. That's not true, but that's now stuck in my head, right, right? how many of you grew up in a situation where spiritual things were very much at the forefront of your existence? Shoot your hand up. Got it. Got it. Great. Awesome. Okay. How many of you grew up in a situation where spiritual things were kind of acknowledged occasionally? Maybe you went to church and went to church regularly, but day in and day out, spiritual things weren't really like a part of your Kind of day in, day out, recognize, experience, that kind of thing. How many of you grew up in a situation like that? We actually have more hands that have gone up than people in the room. So some of you have voted twice. Awesome. Awesome. Um, Last one, how many of you grew up in a culture where spiritual things just simply weren't acknowledged, weren't even talked about? It was just, there's this life, there's the physical, there's the material, but there's really nothing on the other side of it. How many of you grew up in a family, culture, situation, school, kind of like that? Cool. Some of you are like doing the hand raise like this, you know, it's like a Baptist worship service. Everybody's just kind of, nobody wants to raise their hands. Church people like that joke. Uh, Non-church people don't know. All right. Here it is, bottom line truth number one that Paul wants us to wrap our minds around is we got two bottom line truths, two kind of 30,000 foot big truths that that Paul is basing this passage on. He's communicating here in Ephesians 6, 10 through 20. So bottom line truth number one is this. There is a spiritual element to this life that impacts my daily existence. There is a spiritual, spiritual element to this life that impacts my daily existence let's say it another way there is a spiritual reality that impacts my daily reality A few weeks ago, Kevin Chan, Pastor Kevin Chan, preached, and he encouraged us to read the entire book of Ephesians from start to finish. I've actually taken his advice four or five times since that sermon. I've I've loved just reading Ephesians start to finish, And, and I did so again yesterday. I actually printed it out from start to finish, and I highlighted all the places that Paul talks about spiritual realities. Spirit of God. Spirit at work in the sons of disobedience. The spirit in your heart. Heaven. Uh, We are seated in spiritual realms, spiritual blessings. See all the highlights? Do you see them all? This is what he's been talking about since the very beginning of the book. There is a spiritual element to this life that impacts my daily reality, my daily existence. What Paul is saying here is this life is far more than what we can experience with our five senses. He wants the church in Ephesus and he wants you and me and God wants you and me to wrap our mind around the fact that a spiritual world, a spiritual reality exists. And it doesn't just exist out there somewhere. We live in it. We interact with it. And it has enormous impact on our daily existence. Paul wants to pull back the curtain of the physical. He wants to lift the veil so the church can see the spiritual realities that drive our daily experience. So some of you who grew up in homes where spiritual realities were on the forefront, whether you grew up in a Jesus-loving home or not a Jesus-loving home, you grew up in a spiritual situation, a spiritual culture where spiritual things were acknowledged, this bottom line truth that there's a spiritual reality that impacts a daily existence, it's easy for you. It's not news. You're like, oh yeah, totally. That's kind of my experience. I know that. I get that. But for some of you, this is brand new. This is really brand new stuff. But Paul wants to help us see it. He says, look, look behind the veil of the physical, the veil of the material. When we lift it up, there's a spiritual side of life, a spiritual reality behind that physical reality. So, question two. When we lift the curtain and we see a spiritual reality, what is that reality like? What's going on in that world? War movie fans, I've got great news for you. You'll love this. You like Gladiator, you like 300, you like Braveheart, you like that stuff? Bottom line truth, number two, in the spiritual world, in a spiritual reality, when we lift the veil on the physical, there is an all-out war going on in the spiritual realm. There is an absolute, all-out, no-holds-barred War going on in spiritual realms. We'll get to details as we kind of go this morning, but what we need to establish kind of as a general principle, an overarching guiding truth, is that there's a spiritual reality that impacts my daily reality. And number two, what's going on in the spiritual is a war. It's the kingdom of good and the kingdom of evil, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan, just two kingdoms, and they are at war in spiritual realms. So Paul says, okay, if there's a spiritual reality that impacts my daily reality and and." war is going on in that spiritual reality, then how do we respond? How do we respond? And that's the exhortation that Paul charges the church with in Ephesians 6, 10 through 20. And he says three things. He says this, prepare for battle, dress for battle, stand in battle. If there's a war going on, and there is, then as believers... We have got to prepare for battle, we've got to dress for battle, and we've got to stand in battle. And there are two very simple tactics for preparing for battle. They're really simple truths, but they're radically life-transforming if we can wrap our mind around them. We'll spend a little bit of time on this prepare for battle this morning, and we'll get to the dress for battle and stand in battle. Two truths that help us prepare for battle. The first one is this, and this is brilliant. You're going to love it. The first piece to preparing for battle, the first step in preparing for battle is you've got to recognize that you're in one. (laughs) Right? Wow, that was, I'm glad I came to church this morning. That was really good. That was rich. That was good. In order to prepare for battle, you've got to first recognize that you are in one. Look at verse 12. Paul says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, and against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly realms. Look at the war language, even throughout the text. This whole thing is about armor. He talks about arrows being launched at us, he talks about standing firm, he's giving marching orders. That word for wrestle that he uses there, he had a whole bunch of different words he could have chosen. He uses the word wrestle because it's the Greek word for like that hand-to-hand combat Greco-Roman wrestling. It's close quarters battle. We're not launching missiles from afar. We are in an exhausting hand-to-hand combat spiritual battle each and every day. We're not on a cruise ship, we're on a battleship. We're not on vacation in the south of France. We're storming the beaches of Normandy. This is what Paul is saying. You and I are in a battle, and we've got to wake up and recognize that we're in one. The interesting part about this section of scripture, verse 10 through 20, Ephesians chapter 6, where Paul concludes, is that there's a bunch of different things Paul does in all of the letters that he wrote that are included here in the New Testament. Sometimes he gives a list of things. Sometimes it's like a systematic description of truth claims. Sometimes it's like deep theological teaching. This section is none of those things. In fact, if you read some of the speeches that have been recorded in history, and even from mythology, from... Roman and Greek mythology when generals would charge their armies when they would give them marching orders before they went into battle guess what this section sounds like just like one of those speeches in theme in topic in language all of those things Paul is giving marching orders picture William Wallace at the end of Braveheart picture uh, Maximus Decius, Decimus Meridius. That's uh, Russell Crowe's character in Gladiator, by the way. This is the general's last charge to the troops before they step into the most important battle that they'll ever fight. And Paul wants to conclude his book by saying to the church there's a war going on in spiritual realms. It's a war. It's a battle. And whether you recognize it or not, you're in it. So here's some encouragement. Here's some exhortation. Here are your marching orders. Can you imagine troops storming the beach at Normandy and all these guys coming off with guns and helmets and backpacks and everything else? And there's a dude on the back of the boat with a lawn chair and a pina colada and a book going, wow, this is lovely. This is lovely. That's the idiot that doesn't know he's in a battle. That's what Paul's trying to wake us up to. He's saying, look, don't walk on the beaches of Normandy in the middle of a battle with a lawn chair and a pina colada. You're not going to make it that far, Slick. Like, you have to wake up and recognize that you are in a spiritual battle. Do you ever feel like the Christian life is a war? Like it's a battle? You want to know why you feel that way? Because it's a picking battle. So That's why. If it walks like a duck and looks like a duck and quacks like a duck, what is it? It's a duck. It's a duck. We're in a battle, we're in a war. Men of God, when you are tempted to click on that website and it's all you can do not to do it, when temptation comes to call and it's exhausting and you fight against it and it feels like it's a war, you wanna know why? Because it is. Young dating couples, when you're sitting on the couch, you want to reach out and touch somebody in a way that's not appropriate, and you just are fighting against it, and and it's exhausting, and you're battling, and you're wrestling, and it feels like a war, it's because it is one when overspending and gossip and anger and all kinds of sin come to call, when temptation is just too strong, when life feels overwhelming, when sharing the gospel with your friends and family feels like a wrestling match, when you just can't seem to live in your new identity in Christ on a daily basis and you wonder why. Why is this so difficult? Say it with me now. It's because it is a war. It's a war. In order to prepare for battle, we've got to know that we're in one. Number two, we've got to know our enemy. We've got to recognize that we have an enemy. Read verses 11 and 12 with me again. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, Against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Whose schemes do we wrestle against? The devil. Who is our enemy? The rulers and powers in this present darkness, the spiritual forces of evil. Once we recognize that we're in a war, we have to recognize our enemy, and he's real. And his minions are real. Those who do his bidding are real. For some of you, again, this is going to be news and this might be a little bit tough, but we've got to wrap our minds around this or we're going to be the guy with the lawn chair and the pina colada, right? We've got to wrap our minds around that we have a real enemy. When the Bible talks about Satan, the Bible uses proper names to talk about Satan. In other words, Satan is not a concept. He's not a figure of speech. He's a real being. He was once an angel of light that rebelled against God and took a third of the angels with him and rebelled against the Lord of hosts. He now seeks to thwart God's purposes on earth by holding non-believers spiritually captive and by tempting and deceiving believers. Let me just throw a couple of verses your way so you know I'm not just pulling stuff out of nowhere. John 10.10 says, The thief, that Satan, comes to steal, kill, and destroy but the son of man came that we might have life and have it abundantly. 1 Peter 5:8 says your enemy prowls around like a roaring lion. Your enemy the devil is what 1 Peter 5:8 says prowls around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. 2 Corinthians 11:3 says his desire is to deceive you. Second Timothy 2 Timothy 2:26 says he's trying to ensnare you. Now, Satan, our enemy, has been absolutely and decidedly defeated at the cross. The victory is won, and that's what we celebrate each and every week, and next week, above all weeks. The end of the book is written. He's done, he's defeated, but he hasn't been ultimately disarmed and destroyed. That time is coming in the future. So in the meantime, Satan exists, along with those who do his biddings, demons, do his bidding, the demons, they, they exist to steal your life in Christ, to tempt you, to deceive you. He can't be everywhere at once. He doesn't know everything, but he's a very powerful creature that have has, that's had a thousand years of human history to learn, how to learn how to thwart and manipulate believers. He is our enemy. That's who we fight against. So if Satan is our enemy and those who do his bidding are the enemy that attacks us, guess who is not our enemy? People people are not our enemy those who don't know jesus are are not our enemy but we act like it sometimes listen we are not fighting a battle against politicians that we disagree with we're not fighting a battle against legislators that we oppose we're not fighting a battle against talk show hosts that say unbiblical things We're not fighting a battle against friends or family members who don't know Jesus or reject Jesus. They are not our enemy. Satan is. Those who don't know Christ, here's what the Bible talks about. The Bible says that they've been taken captive by the enemy. They're not the enemy, they've been taken captive by an overtaking enemy. Those who are lost and don't know Jesus, they're not stupid, they're not weird. They're not dim-witted, and they are certainly not the enemy. They are wonderful, intelligent, loved by God, created in His image, and they've been taken spiritually captive by a real spiritual enemy. Let's not treat them like they're our enemy. We're here to help rescue captives, set captives free, not fight against those who are really not our enemy. Look, I know this is heavy stuff, But here's the deal, if we don't recognize that we're in a battle and we don't recognize that we have an enemy, we're absolutely dead in the water. But if I recognize that I'm in a war and I recognize who my enemy is, now I've got a chance at winning. Now I've got a chance at fighting back. In order to be prepared for battle, we've got to know we're in one, and we've got to recognize our enemy. Let's just talk about a couple of implications, and then we're going to move on to how to dress for battle. One, for me, me personally, when I started to wrap my mind around this, and, and it started to become like that, that we, there's a spiritual reality that impacts my daily reality, and I started to recognize spiritual realities on a daily basis. You know, one, one, the one thing that changed for me radically is the way I pray radically changed that for me. And it radically changed, especially the way I pray for my wife. I pray for my wife every morning before I leave. Sometimes she's awake to hear it. It's great. Um, No, I'm kidding. She's always awake to hear it. We pray together. We pray together. And I pray spiritual protection over her. I pray that she would not be deceived by the enemy. And you know what? She prays the same for me. Every Sunday morning before I come here to preach, guess what happens? My wife lays her hands on my shoulder, puts her hand on my leg, and she prays for me. Prays against the attacks of Satan, against the attacks of the evil one, against the attacks that do his bidding, and prays into the peace and goodness and protection and victory that is Jesus, our warrior king. It radically changed the way I pray. I hope that it does for you. You know what else? The way you pray for your kids. The way you pray for your kids. Your kids, whether you know it or not, they are under attack every day. And you know what's not attacking them? Pop music, movies, the enemy. The enemy. And the enemy might be using those things, but that's an enemy attack from the powers of this present darkness. Pray over your kids pray God's protection. It absolutely impacts the way that I view life challenges. And I walk around thinking, wow, I wish my life wasn't so hard sometimes. I wish walking with Jesus was easier. I wish sharing the gospel went a little bit better. You know why? Because Jesus promised in this world you will have trouble. It's like rarely the favorite promise of Scripture. People say, what's your favorite Scripture promise? You know, Jesus promised I'll have trouble. I love that one. That's my favorite. But you know why he promised that? Because we have an enemy and because we're in a battle. So then when, when the gospel gets rejected, when things are tough, when I get persecuted, when all those things would come, kind of come down on me, I'm pressed but not crushed, persecuted, not abandoned, pressed down but not destroyed. When I feel that way, my response is, well, the hardships and persecution and difficulty make total sense. Why? Because I'm in a war and I've got a real enemy. It makes sense. So now once I've prepared, I know I'm in a battle, and I know I've got an enemy, how does Paul want me to respond after I've prepared for battle? He says, now you've got to dress for it. Dress for battle. Dress accordingly. And remember, picture this with me. Picture this. Paul is writing this letter to the church in Ephesus, and where is he writing from? He's writing from a Roman. Come on now. There you... Well, you've got to say it together, or it doesn't even sound right. Okay, He's writing from a Roman prison. Look at that. That feels good, doesn't it? That feels nice. He's writing from a Roman prison. So there are Roman guards, Roman soldiers. So here's Paul. He's writing, or he's dictating somebody else's writing. He looks up, and what does he see? He sees the armor of a Roman soldier. He sees the armor of a Roman guard. And he knows that this congregation in Ephesus, he knows that this group of people would have been seeing Roman soldiers each and every day, sandals, boots on their feet, and and, and belt around their waist, and a sword, and a helmet, and a breastplate. He knows that they were familiar with that picture, so Paul uses that picture, and he says, dress for battle, dress accordingly. So picture that with me. You know what a Roman soldier looks like. Picture that with me and listen to what Paul writes, verse 13. He says, therefore, anytime there's a therefore in the scripture, you ask yourself, what is it? Therefore. It's exactly right. You're in a battle. You've got an enemy. Therefore, for this reason, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Supplication. We'll get to the second half of verse 18 in a minute. Let's stay here for just for a few moments. Let's camp here. How to dress for battle. Watch this. This is very interesting to me. Each piece of the armor of God corresponds directly to one of the ways the Bible tells us that Satan will attack us. Each Piece of the armor of God corresponds to one of the ways the Bible says Satan will attack us. So Paul says, dress for battle, and not just dress for it; dress specifically, so you can respond to specific attacks. Let's look at our first example. Just kind of wrap our heads around it and ramp in this first piece of armor: the belt of truth. The belt of truth. John 8:44 talks about Satan. It says, when Satan lies. He speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So check it out. This is the corresponding attack and defense. Satan is the the, the deceiver, so put on the belt of truth. Satan is the deceiver. He's the liar. He wants to mess with your mind and get you to believe something that's not accurate. Remember the very first spiritual attack that the Scripture records? The very first attack of Satan, it's Genesis chapter 3. And what does Satan ask the woman? He says, did God really say you're not supposed to eat of any tree in the garden? Do you see how he twisted God's words? Because that's not even what God really said. God really said, you don't eat of that tree. But Satan wants to deceive. He wants to lie. He wants to confuse And he says, did God really say you can't eat of any tree? So Paul says in Ephesians, put on the belt of truth so that you might be able to respond to John 8 that that Satan is a deceiver, he is a liar. Listen to the way God's truth changes lives. God's truth totally transforms lives. Just a couple months ago, we had a woman come in very first time here it was wonderful and she gave her life to jesus she said yes to trusting jesus with her sin yes to trusting jesus with her life and she's excited about the transforming work that god is doing in her life even now and you know what she said after the fact god's truth changed my life you want to know what the truth claim was god loves you never heard that before this woman had never heard that before Like, I thought God had forgotten about me. I thought he abandoned me. I thought he didn't even know I existed. Now you're telling me he loves me, and it's radically changing her existence each and every day. Why? Because now she's not believing lies anymore, that God forgot her, or God abandoned her, but she knows the truth of God. God's truth absolutely changes lives, and it can keep changing yours each and every day if you let it. You respond to the deceit and the lies of Satan by putting on the belt of truth. Let me give you a practical way to do that, and we're going to move on to piece of armor number two. Here's the practical way. Take a piece of paper, draw a line long ways from top to bottom. On the top of one column, write truth. On the top of the other column, write lies. Every time a lie enters your head about who you are, who God is... Find the corresponding truth in the scripture. Write the lie down on one side under lies. Make sure you put it in the right column or you'll get confused. And then you write truth on the other side and you write God's corresponding truth. So watch this. I am condemned. That's how I feel today. But now I write Romans 8.1. That's the truth on the other side. This is a lie. I'm condemned. Romans 8.1 says, For there is now for no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I don't have a future. My future is bleak. I don't have anything on the horizon. That's a lie. What's the truth? Jeremiah 29 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. They are bleak. That's not what he says. Plans to prosper you, not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. That's the truth. I am tempted beyond what I can bear. That's a lie. 1 Corinthians ten thirteen says, God always gives you a way out of temptation. So now you have in front of you truth and lies. I put on the belt of truth. I cast off lies. I live in the light of God's truth. I don't live in the light of the deceiver that's telling me something different than what this book says. Piece of armor number two. Breastplate of righteousness. It's interesting to me That the armor of God Paul tells us to take up or to put on is also mentioned throughout Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 9, Isaiah chapter 11, Isaiah chapter 56. Mentioned throughout Isaiah. And you know who's taking this armor up and putting this armor on in the book of Isaiah? Yahweh. Yahweh. God himself and the promised Messiah is putting this armor on. So when Paul says... Put on the armor of God. He's literally saying, put on the armor of God. Put on God's armor. It's his armor. You take it up and put it on. You start with truth, and you move to the breastplate of righteousness. So when Paul says, put on the breastplate of righteousness, the second piece, he's not necessarily talking about right behavior. What he's talking about is the righteousness of Christ that God has given to us freely. He's talking about that we are right in God's eyes. We are set right before him. The kind of $2 theological word that commentators and scholars use are, is imputed righteousness. We have been given the righteousness of Christ, not because of anything we've done, but because of what Christ did and what he gave to us, the breastplate of righteousness. Now watch this. Here's the corresponding attack. Romans, or Revelation 12, 10 says that Satan is the accuser. So how do you respond to the accusations of Satan? Accusations like, you're condemned, you're no good, God forgot about you, you're not worthy of love, you're not good enough to be God's kid. How do you respond to those accusations? It's not my own actions, it's not my own breastplate, My defense is the righteousness of Christ. It's saying Christ has purchased this breastplate of righteousness for me. It's his armor, and I take it up, I put it on. So I do not stand before God condemned anymore. I stand before him confident, free, lifted up. This is not my breastplate. It's God's breastplate that he's imparted to me. It's a part of God's armor that I have been given to stand before God without condemnation. Bottom line truth, Satan is the accuser, so put on the breastplate of righteousness. Satan is the accuser of God's people, so put on the breastplate of righteousness that you might defend against his accusations. Just a little tip. When you deal with condemnation, when you deal mentally with thinking I stand condemned before God, I've messed it up too bad this time, he's not going to love me anymore, man, I really wrecked that situation, man, I gave into that sin again, and you talk about me and I and what you're going to do and what you did, you're probably not taking up the breastplate of righteousness. The breastplate of righteousness does not say I or me. The breastplate of righteousness says Jesus did for me. This is his armor, and I stand before God confident because of what he did. That's how you deal with accusation. Number three, 2 Timothy 2.26 says, Satan holds men captive. Satan holds men spiritually captive. Luke chapter 4, when Jesus introduces his ministry for the first time, he stands up in the synagogue and he says what? I have come to set the captives free. Satan is the captor. The gospel sets us free. The good news of Jesus sets us free. So put on the readiness of the gospel. Put those shoes on your feet. And you know, the interesting thing that Paul says here in Ephesians six ten through 20, he doesn't just say, put on the gospel on your feet. What does he say? Put on the readiness of the gospel on your feet. There's a, there's a uh, preacher that I listened to, a pastor, and several years ago he did this study on uh, Ephesians. He preached to Ephesians, and he talked about that modern soldiers during wartime sleep with their boots on. They sleep with their boots on. They recognize they're in a battle. They recognize they've got an enemy, so they sleep with their boots on. So they are always what? Ready. Always be prepared to give an answer for the hope that you have. That sound right? You remember that? You know that from Peter? Always be prepared to give an answer to the hope, that, for the hope that you have. So here's what Paul is saying: Put on the readiness of the gospel. Sleep with your boots on. Always be prepared to give an answer. Always be prepared to help and participate with Jesus as He's setting captives free. Since we fight for Him, since we are on His side, we are on God's side. We are. We are. Setting captives free by always being prepared with that answer. Sleep with your boots on. Sleep with the gospel on your feet. Always be ready. Number four, specific attack of Satan. He's a tempter. He's a tempter. He tempted original man and woman in Genesis 3. He tempted Jesus himself in Matthew chapter 4. Jesus did not give in and sin, but he tempted Jesus. He will surely tempt us. So take up the shield of faith to resist temptation. So how in the world does the shield of faith help me resist temptation? Listen, get this picture with me. When we see a Roman soldier and we see that little shield on their arm, you know what I'm talking about, this little thing that they did? I would not make a good Roman soldier. I might make a good dancer, but I wouldn't make a good Roman soldier, right? That wasn't the shield. That's not an accurate picture, the accurate picture is the shield of faith was almost five, shield of faith. The Roman shield was almost 5 feet tall and almost 2 feet wide. It was made of wood and wrapped in leather and bound by metal and then they would soak it in water. Why? Because when you went into battle and the guys on the other side said, hey, I've got a good idea. Let's light these arrows on fire. And they shot arrows or flaming darts at the Roman legion, at the Roman army. You don't want to have a shield made of wood. You understand? Dried out brittle wood. They soaked it in water so they could extinguish the flaming arrows. So here's the picture. Jesus says Satan is going to sling fiery arrows of temptation your way. Lust pride, doubt, anger, gossip. The shield of faith says, no, I trust God's way's better. I trust that God's way's better. Listen, when Satan tempted Jesus in the wilderness and he said, turn these stones into bread, remember? Turn these stones into bread. What did Jesus say? Man does not live by bread alone. In other words, God's way, God's word is better. I trust Him. I trust the Father. I place my faith in Him. And when my faith is in Him and not in myself, I'm able to extinguish the fiery darts of temptation. God is here to give me life, says John 10.10. In His presence is fullness of joy and pleasure forevermore, says Psalm 16.11. Therefore, I place my trust, my faith, in God's plan. And that faith becomes a shield to protect you and me from temptation. Practical application. Think of the last time you sinned. Don't think too hard. Think of the last time you sinned. Okay? At the root of that sin, if you kind of boil it down to where it started, I can almost guarantee you that at the root of that sin was a lack of faith. I did not trust God for what he said was best. I trusted me. I trusted my way said god i know you say this but i don't uh, yeah, i don't know so i'm gonna do my stuff i'm gonna do my thing paul says take up the shield of faith trust god with it you can extinguish the flaming darts of the evil one piece of armor number 5 the helmet of salvation helmet of salvation bottom line truth satan is a life killer he's a life killer Our salvation is life abundant. I've quoted John 10, 10 a couple of times. I'll quote it again. For the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. The Son of Man came that we might have life and have it abundantly. Satan is a life killer. Our salvation is life abundant. And salvation is not just a moment in time, although it is that. It's not just a moment in time but it's something that we put on every day to say, I live in new life in Christ, he gave me salvation, he has called me into his kingdom, he has abundant life waiting for me. It's not just a moment of time, like a sweet 16 party or something, it is a daily experience of the life that Jesus gives. That's the helmet of salvation, the helmet of life, to resist the stealing, killing, and destroying of life that Satan wants to do. Practical application to put on the helmet of salvation, preach yourself the gospel every day. Preach yourself the gospel every day. One of our our, uh, youths uh, from the church here uh, came into the sanctuary a couple weeks ago and took a picture of herself right here with this little platform and her Bible, and uh, she was mimicking me. And uh, she Instagrammed it, mimic in a totally playful way, very cool, she's a friend, she's great, she's awesome, so I thought it was awesome, and I commented on it, and liked it, and did the double tap, and the whole thing, okay, so, um, so she takes a picture, she Instagrams it, and it says, like, um, welcome to Bayview Glen Church, uh, I'm, you know, I'm the lead pastor here, Lucas Cooper, something like that, and she was posed like this, which I don't think was accurate because I don't smile. And if I do, I don't smile like that. So I just didn't think it was accurate. But, but listen, here's the thing. You don't have to act like preacher boy. You don't have to act like pastor boy. You don't have to have three points and an outline when you preach yourself the gospel every day. Here's what it is. You get up, you open your eyes, you get your coffee, whatever it is, on your way to work in your car, here's the deal. I am a sinner saved by grace. I was once held captive and now I've been set free. I earned death for myself because of the things I did, said, and because of the corruption that was in my heart. But Jesus purchased redemption for me. I am forgiven. I am free. I am confident. And I can put on that helmet of salvation today and live in the new life that Jesus has given me. Just preach preach the gospel to yourself. If you want to have three points in an outline, please, PowerPoint, whatever else you need to do to make that work, that's great. But preach yourself the gospel every day. The helmet of salvation is not a one point in time. It's not like a set of keys that like, oh, I've lost my key, I've lost my salvation. That's not how that works. It's a daily experience of life. So remind yourself every day of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Finally, last one, and we got some concluding thoughts and we'll be done. Number six, number six, the last piece that, that, that we're told to take up is the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Again, Satan is a liar, God's word is a weapon of truth. It's interesting that we're back to truth again, aren't we? It's interesting, truth and lies. Am I living in truth, a light of the truth, or I'm living in light of a lie? Satan is a liar, God's word is a weapon of truth. I asked myself this question this week because what Paul says is, take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God? And I thought to myself, is the sword the Spirit or is the sword the word of God? Do you, do you understand the question I'm asking myself? you understand the question I'm asking the scripture? Which is it? It's the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Sword or, Is the sword the Spirit or is the sword the word of God? So I look back in the original language and it's very difficult to translate into English, but here's kind of what Paul is saying. Take up the word of God that is empowered by the spirit of God. Take up the word of God that's empowered by the spirit of God. The word of God is the sword. The spirit of God empowers the sword, animates the sword. Do you understand? This is why when Paul says, take up uh, the belt of truth, take up the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, this is why Bible memorization, like is actually a really, really, really good thing, because all it is is you're sharpening your sword. This is why coming and listening to biblical preaching here, or listening to podcasts online, or talking about the word with people, hiding it away in your heart, this is why it's a really, really good thing. Why? Because Psalm 1 says, "'Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel "'of the wicked, or stands in the way of sinners, "'or sits in the seat of mockers, "'for his delight is on the law of the Lord, "'the word of God, and on it he meditates day and night.'" He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season. Its leaf doesn't wither or fade. When Satan lies, when Satan deceives, when Satan tries to rob us of life, we pick up the word of God, empowered by the spirit of God, and we say, "Ah, no, that's not true. That's not accurate. I've got life in Christ. I'm no longer condemned, and the spirit of God... It, it, oh, Empowers the word of God on our behalf. This is why Paul says in just another two verses, which we read, but we won't like unpack totally, but he says, That's why you pray what? In the spirit. Be empowered by the spirit of God as you respond to the attacks of the evil one. Last point, we'll do this one really quick. We've prepared for battle by recognizing that we're in one and recognizing our enemy. We're dressed for battle so that we can respond to the cunning attacks of the evil one. And the last thing that Paul says is stand. Stand in battle. He says stand in verse 11. He says withstand and stand in verse 13. He says stand in verse 14. And in verse the second half of 18 where we left off, this is what Paul says. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance. Perseverance. Making supplication for all the saints and also for me, that words may be given to me and opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly again as I ought to speak. In other words, the commander in chief has placed you at a post. Stand there, persevere. He's placed you in a marriage. I've heard it said before that there are two kinds of marriages, good marriages and hard, or bad marriages and hard marriages. Because the hard ones are always good. I've been married eight years this month. Has it always been easy? No. Is it worth every minute? Yes. Yes. Why? Because my wife and I stand together at our post against the attacks of the evil one. Malachi says that God hates divorce. So Satan loves divorce. So he's trying to break us up. He's trying to attack our marriage. You know what? He's trying to attack yours too. So we stand. We persevere. We dig our heels in. We say, no, you're not coming against me. You're not coming against my family. I am protected by the breastplate of righteousness, the sword of the Spirit, the helmet of salvation. Pray for your kids. Stand in battle. If you're leading a small group, people's lives get messy, things get difficult, stand. God has called you there. Stay at your post. Some of you have been at a ministry post for 40, 50, 60 years. You've done this. This is awesome. It's it's encouraging for those of us who are younger than you to go, look at that person that has stood in battle on behalf of our king. That's awesome. Keep at it persevere those of you who are ministering to children god bless you those of you who are ministering to junior high students especially for for crying out loud you, you are in a battle are you not stand there persevere take up the armor of god and what does that do how do we move the kingdom forward we take new ground for the kingdom We plant churches, we call people to Jesus, we call people to repentance in our lives, in our marriages, in our homes, in our private lives, taking new ground for the kingdom every day, and we set captives free. Prepare for battle, dress for battle, stand in battle. Band, worship team, if you guys would come back up, we're gonna pray together and then we're gonna conclude by singing to our God of angel armies who's behind us and goes before us and is always on our side. Pray with me. Oh God, we give you praise and thanks for who you are and for what you've done. For the armor that you've given to us that we might be able to stand against the schemes and the cunning attacks of the evil one. Teach us, oh God, to be outfitted with this full armor, the helmet, the breastplate, the belt of truth, the sword of the Spirit, the shoes of the gospel, and teach us, God, to stand in battle and take back new territory for your kingdom. We lift these prayers up and these songs up to you even now. In the name of Christ, God's people together said, amen. Hey, let's stand literally and figuratively as we sing about the God of angel armies.